0: Take your Bibles or your Bible apps and open up to the letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the book to the Philippians. We'll be in chapter 2 today, the first 11 verses. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. God our Father, what wondrous words, what a wondrous mystery to consider the descent of Your Son, Your beloved Son, here to earth, in our likeness, in our flesh, even unto death. Father, may we put away small thoughts of Christ today. Help us to think bigger thoughts to see this infinite descent from heavenly glory to death on a cross. May that arrest us this day and bring pause as we consider why He would do this. And then may there just be abounding love and joy exceeding as we see Him now highly exalted at your right hand. Father, help us by your Spirit to put away small thoughts of your beloved Son and to worship Him as Lord this day. Thank you for these wondrous words. May it be that the meditations of our hearts and even the words of my mouth are pleasing unto you. Come, Holy Spirit, and fix our eyes upon Christ. To the glory of God our Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When everyone was graduating, heading south to Virginia Tech, I went the other direction. Contrarian, but I've made my way back here, and this is whether you like it or not, Hokieland. Land. You don't have to go very far to see someone wearing maroon and orange. Even in my own house now, I have my oldest, who will be uh, moving to the New River Valley this this summer or fall. Everyone's maroon and orange in these parts. But for me, I'm a dual alumnus. I When everyone was going south, I went north to James Madison University and donned the purple and gold. My fellow alum, Carrie Grace and Billy Cundiff, wherever he is, and then getting married, I went to Richmond and went to Virginia Commonwealth University and became a Ram, wherever Mike Bodwin is, another fellow, and donned the the black and gold. I'm a dual alumnus. I I have two affections here, and so I, I would like to remind the Hokies that of the teams in Virginia who've won national football championships, that the JMU was won in 2004 and 2016. And even two, this year, the last year, 2018, women's lacrosse national champions, JMU. The, and for VCU, we made the final four in 2011. We should have gone to the championship. A little bit more play, a little more wise play. A dual alumnus. Well, Derek, what do you do when VCU and JMU play football? Easy, I cheer for JMU. VCU doesn't have a team. What do you, what do, you do if they play each other in basketball? It usually never happens. I'd probably cheer for VCU. And they're just going to wreck more havoc. See, even just fandom or being an alumnus of a school, you, you have an affinity for that. There's attachment and affections there. But Derek, you said you graduated from Virginia Commonwealth University. What is a commonwealth, Derek? Well, there's only four here in the United States. Virginia, Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania. And it's really no big deal. It's just the way the state constitutions were written. I'm a citizen of Roanoke City in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the United States, this third rock from the sun. Uh, Pastor Christian has now made it through his interview phase, and although a Swiss native, it will be getting a court date soon to become a, a U.S. citizen as well. He will be both a Swiss native, a citizen, a citizen of Switzerland, and a citizen of the United States—dual citizenship. What do you do when you get two two affections and two allegiances there? Where is home? And this is where we find ourselves in Philippians. There's, there's a tension here. There's a dual citizenship, one of, on earth and one in heaven. It's not necessarily where we live, but it's how we live. 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. The word for citizenship here has a root of polis, like metropolis or politics. It's very civic here with this language Paul is using. We've already seen this language um, last week, only let your manner of life be worthy. That verb of letting your manner of life be worthy is also civically oriented. It's very purposeful here for Philippi, which is a, a colony of the Roman Empire. It was a place where the veterans of the, the armies, the, army, the Empire army would retire And so there was a strong allegiance to Caesar here. And yet Paul is using all these civic words, telling them to be citizens of heaven, to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, even here on earth. Philippi took pride in their, their citizenship in the empire. And now there's this band of believers who are trying to live as citizens of heaven, being worthy of Christ Jesus the Lord and it cost them because peace was above all things the Pax Romana here in the empire and then allegiance to Caesar as Lord if you did not live into this if you didn't get with this program there would be opposition and persecution and there was the churches in Macedonia experienced much affliction and extreme poverty, as recorded in 2 Corinthians 8, In much affliction as recorded in 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul exhorts them in Thessalonians 2, your steadfastness and your faith in all the persecutions and the aff- afflictions that you are enduring. But as Timothy is trying to pastor these churches and support these churches, Paul tells him, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors go from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. So Philippian church live as worthy citizens of God's kingdom there in that colony of of the Roman Empire. And how are we going to do that? according to last week's passage, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do not be frightened by your opponents. Our unity, our mission together, our fearlessness, this is how we live a worthy life as citizens of heaven. And now today we come to one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. I'm daunted to even come and preach it, just want to just keep reading it aloud he's going to continue to expound on how we're to live as worthy citizens here of heaven and look at these verses verses one through four are one long sentence gonna, it's going to be an if then structure to this and we're going to diagram it or dissect it a bit but let's not lose the, the whole picture here there's an there's some if clauses that are going to begin this beautiful sentence, as Paul is exhorting the church, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort of love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy. This is what his heart is. This is the gospel worthy life. Look at the first three. There's There's a Trinitarian echo there of Christ and Spirit, but the one in the middle of love, there's there's an implied that all love is from God our Father. So there's a Trinitarian echo here of Christ and Father and, and Spirit. Because everything that we have, if we're gonna live a gospel worthy life, the life that we even have is from God, it's in God, it's for God, It's in God that we live and move and have our being. So our life has to be shaped by the triune God. And this is where our encouragement, our comfort, our fellowship comes from. But what about this fourth phrase? If there's a Trinitarian echo in the first three, What do we just do if there's any affection or sympathy? Why why is there a fourth phrase added to the, the three? Why don't we just keep it in the threes? And there we find a word that Paul has already used in chapter one, affection. As he began this letter, Paul wrote, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Depending on the context, this verse either means affection or or deep love. It also, depending on other contexts, could mean just entrails or your heart. So from the the deep places of your being, this is how I yearn for you, church. I'm in an imprisonment in Rome, and I'm writing this letter, and I have deep, deep affection for you. Now, I want that affection to be in you for one another. We have comfort and encouragement, fellowship with the triune God, but now together, let there be deep affection and sympathy. As he writes to the church in Colossae, this is the same word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts or compassionate deepness, affections kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Have you ever found you're, you're at a time in your life where you've had to be searching for a new church? You either have moved or, or even within the same town, it was this time, of a season where the Lord was moving you to a new, new local church. What were the things you looked for in a local church? According to Pew Research, this is what it was in 2016. Top of the list in the top seven, quality of sermons, feeling welcomed by leaders, style of the service, location, education of kids, having family or friends already in the congregation, availability of volunteer opportunities. These are all good things. I'm not here—these are good and necessary things that we're quantitatively trying to evaluate churches. But Paul takes it deeper. He's not saying, here's how you be a good church, get it all together. He said, experience the triune God. Have affection and sympathy for one another and then let that be your witness. These are good things. We need to give attention to the preaching of the word, the care of our, the of our kids, how we, we work together and serve together. But this is what we want. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from love. Participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, these are the intangibles which are seen in our life together. The first three are our verticals to a triune God. The fourth is the horizontal relationship we have with one another. Affection and sympathy, if, if we have this, then, then we come to this very long rest of the sentence, well, what's the, what's the main verb? If, if we want all these things, these conditional clauses, then what do we want? Completed joy, Paul says. Complete my joy is the main verb and noun of the sentence. You, it's a command. If this, if we're gonna experience this, then complete my joy. I rejoice, and yes, I rejoice again, but complete my joy. Derek, is just a selfish apostle? Just lonely and depressed, de- despondent in house arrest in Rome. Just make me happy, Philippian church. It's tough over here. That would be a wrong reading. This isn't a, a selfish prayer. This is a, a prayer that's upward for the affections and worship of God. He wants the church to experience the triune God and love together. That's going to give him joy. not selfishly, but in a way that we're wired relationally. How is joy completed? I yearn for you with the affections of Christ. I pray, I pray for you every time I remember you making my prayer all with joy. I'm praying with you for, with joy and I'm commanding you, complete my joy. I am praying that God would move sovereignly in your lives, in the church, for joy, and that I'm commanding you to have joy. It's both divine agency, it's divine sovereignty, but also human work, human agency, and it's together in mystery. How are we going to complete the apostles' joy? Being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Joy is completed with the unity of the church. There must be the unity of the church for the witness of the church and the work of the church. If there's not unity, this will all be fractured and distracted. But if there's unity, then the, the gospel will advance. And he's rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. This is how I'll have joy, but how are we gonna have joy? Through unity. How is unity maintained? When humility is embraced, have the same mind, have the same love, be of full accord and of one mind. But then look at the next phrases that pile up and we, we separate these in the English as separate sentences with the same sentence. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest but to the interest of others. Complete my joy by being of one mind, same love, through unity. How do we get to unity? humility. The only way to unity is through humility. Instead of pursuing their own prestige, you know, this strange and addictive debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion and what people think of us, Paul calls them to humility, lowliness of heart, preferring others above themselves this is not groveling it's not sanctimonious it's not manipulative it's not well, i'll be i want you to see that i'm humble so i can then get to an end just be humble look to the interest of others it's unadorned it's not all dressed up it's just I'm going to count you more significant. I'm going to look to your interest. Humility doesn't mean I need to think less of myself. I don't need to self-deprecate and self-disparage myself. I just need to, I don't need to think less of myself. I just need to think of myself less. I need to think of you more. I mean, let's get a scale you know, get the scale out, good and bad. Think of just this past week. If we could quantify your, our thoughts and actions, and these are the ones that were self-focused or, or self-thinking, or what are we going to do next and what do I have to do, and then the thoughts that we have of other people. Now the moms in the congregation are going to win this thing now because the moms are always like serving and caring and take, keeping all things together. But it would be very humbling if we could really quantify how much we think of ourselves and how much we think of others. Or even how much we think of God. This moment, we sing, I need thee every hour. How many were there's? how long were the hour stretches this past week where we gave no thought of God? When he is being so sovereign and loving in every moment of our life, Stacy and I were in a premarital session this past week, and ourselves and the couple that we were with, Megan and Kellen, they, we had underlined the same sentence of the chapter. What is your definition of love? Your, your relationship may demonstrate not how much you love the other person, but how much you love yourself. This past, it was November. December, Stacey and I went to go see Handel's Messiah, right next door at the Jefferson Center. It's the first time I've been to the. I felt like highbrow, Roanoke, here I am, and got dressed up on a Monday night, Tuesday night, to go listen to classical music. And the conductor, David Stuart Wiley, I mean, it was beautiful. We sang the hallelujah chorus at the end, we're all standing up. I was worshiping, I don't know what everybody else is doing, but this was worship for me, midweek worship over at the Jeff Center. But then it's all done, and we've got to do the congratulations for everybody else. David Stewart Wiley could not stop congratulating the first violinist, Akimi Takeyama, who is, I think, the concertmaster. I mean, he would go out, and he'd come back in, congratulating the first violinist. I mean, there's a lot of other people who play, but the first violinist just got all the praise from the conductor. Somebody asked another symphony, conductor, what's the most difficult instrument to play? And this conductor said, second violin. I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. If we have no second violin, we have no harmony. How easy is it for us to play second fiddle? To look to the interests of others, to count them more significant, to not have to be in that chair getting the applause from the conductor all the time, but just being right there. And you held it all together, humbly. Paul is not, he's not subscribing to this neo-pagan notion that you really can't love others till you love yourself. So let me just keep working on myself. I need to keep loving myself. Before too long, we'll be navel gazing, and we'll lose sight of others. This command to humility is countercultural in the Roman Empire, and it's countercultural to our modern culture. The more that we think ourselves, think of ourselves, the more that we figure out how do I measure up and how do I fit in society? What is my identity? Well, where is my prestige? Where is my position? What is my leverage? I have concerns, church. For too many decades, there were those who defined their identity by how they were superior to others. And our, our history is, we have the history that we should be reading and learning of how others thought that they were more superior by their race, ethnicities, by their gender. So you have supremacists, you have chauvinists, who, thinking more of themselves and their power, abused it. But now there's a flip. Entitlement is not necessarily by what, the privilege you have, but how you've been denied privileges. And so it's the same coin, different sides. If we find our entitlement based on our identity in relationship to others, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And there's a reckoning coming. God loves His church too much. There is a reckoning coming. And my heart has mourned the news of this past week. Because those who were more superior, who had places of power, light has shone. And not just in the Catholic Church, it is shining brightly now on the Southern Baptist Convention. The Houston Chronicle did a three part series this past week. Hundreds of victims, of pastors and trusted leaders who abused them. There's a reckoning coming if we're finding our identity and who we are in power over people, woe to us. It's coming. Pray for the church in Chicago. Two mega churches have just collapsed. Willow Creek and Harvest Bible. I mean, this is now. These churches who've been influential are now just collapsing because reckoning has come. Well, let's be careful, church. Let's be careful. Let's not become so captured up then with the intersectionality of, of today. Well, we're, we're going to the abusers. We, light needs to shine. But let's not take up such a social justice to say that our identity is based on what we don't have and what we've not had. So let's engage in the social justice, cultural engagement, reparation, such... Church, these verses that Paul just wrote seem so countercultural. If we're always trying to form our identity by who we are in relation to others, it's always going to be a power play and shifting dynamics. And I'm really concerned about the church to say because light needs to shine on abuse of days and decades past but I have concern that the church is going to take up a banner of social justice and think that we're going to now fix society by how much we can just now right the wrongs and nothing changes hearts but the gospel of Jesus Christ we are not going to fix this just by our own good intentions or best efforts do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Complete my joy. Joy is completed when unity is attained. How is unity attained? Humility. The passage doesn't end there. How how do we cultivate humility? How do we be more humble people? when Jesus is worshiped. Look at the next verses. These are, these are perhaps some of the most, I mean, it's the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. Most mysterious verses in all of scripture. How do we embrace humility? When we get our eyes off of ourselves and look upon Christ. This is how we get to gospel worthy life by looking to Christ and Christ alone. Look at this in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We just sing this, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He is the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing and our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended and took on flesh to ransom us. The king of heaven would become a citizen of earth. Eternal creator God would become a creature. The fullness of the deity would be robed in frailty, bodily dwelling. He was in the form of God. This is His existence. This form is not just some figure or appearance. This is His essence. From all, let's think bigger thoughts. From all eternity, Jesus has existed. The second person of the Trinity, the beloved Son, He's existed in glory. He praised this in His passion. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Nicene Creed professes this, that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. But he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Humility is not something Jesus just learned when he came to earth. Jesus has been humble forever. Humility is not just a thing that's created for this world. It is the the characteristics of Jesus forever. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was divine but his interest was his father's will even our salvation come behold this wondrous mystery he had humility in heaven but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in human light in the likeness of men what does this mean that he emptied himself some theologians in the early 20th century got a hold of this and Wreck things up in the church. The kenosis, well, they, Jesus must have come and just emptied himself of all of his divine attributes. He said, I don't want to be omniscient anymore. I'm omnipresent. I'm knowing. I'm, I'm not going to be all these things. I'm just going to empty myself and just be a man. The kenosis theory. It's heresy. Orthodoxy would say that God, that Jesus is fully man, but he's still fully God. And in his incarnation, he cooperated with the limitations of flesh for the purposes of God. So that when he did die, God in the flesh died. Not man who had given up God, divine attributes. God in the flesh died in Jesus. But he emptied himself. He He cooperated with what this would be, an incarnation. He could have turned the rocks to bread. He could have called angels to save him from the cross. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, the likeness of men. Look at these phrases, being born in the likeness of men. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The angel answered, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called a Holy, the Son of God. The King of Heaven became a citizen of Earth, but how did that happen? A zygote in Mary's womb, a fetus that continued to grow, a baby that even in the proximity of Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist, who would leap for joy in the proximity to Jesus, these two in utero babies whose paths would cross for the fullness of time for the kingdom of God. Who is really Lord here? I command that there be a, a census. And so Mary and Joseph just get on their, the donkey and head on to Bethlehem. Who's really Lord here? Caesar who's telling people to go here and there. Or this one who's born in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloth. This is so peculiar. Jesus is Lord, born in the likeness of men. It's verses like this when we consider such descent, the king of heaven, By the shadowing of the Holy Spirit is a fertilized egg in Mary's womb. How are we chairing reproductive rights in our legislatures when we see this on how Christ came to us? Woe to us! There's coming a reckoning. And if the church wants to stand by and nuance everything, it's going to come a reckoning. He took on the likeness of men. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he's even gone from fertilization to grown man, growing in the wisdom and stature of men and of God, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the nature of a slave. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And even in his passion, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is hours before arrest. These are hours before execution on a cross. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him if Jesus would do this we should do this if this is how he served us this is how we should serve one another there should never be anything that's beneath us never let it be uttered in our mouths well I would just never do that job that's kind of beneath me you may not even say it but we'll think it I would never do that that's beneath me think upon Christ who the king (laughs) eternal turning past glory, who would descend into a towel and wipe his disciples' feet. Nothing was beneath Jesus. I dare you to try to get lower than him. How can we come to embrace humility? It's not by thinking less of ourselves. Think less of, we just need to think of ourselves less. And look to Christ who came, the author and perfect of our faith. You see the subject of our thoughts. You see the object of our affections. You see the standard of our service. He is the hope of our longings. Is he real to you? Or are we playing church and just saying Jesus as many times as we can? He's real. He's in the flesh now with scars. But those scars come from this next verse. How far down would He descend? Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how He came, this is why He came, to die. He humbled himself. He wasn't humbled by Judas Iscariot. He wasn't humbled by the band that came in the garden to arrest him. He wasn't humbled by Herod or Pontius Pilate. They didn't humble him. He humbled himself. One writer writes this, Oh, infinite sublimity of which it must be categorically be true that there was none in heaven or on earth or in the abyss that could humble him. He humbled himself. The infinite qualitative difference between Christ and every other man lies indeed in this: that every humiliation which he suffers is absolutely necessary that he should assent and confirm that he was willing to submit to the humiliation. He was infinitely superior over all the suffering, and yet the suffering was so infinite in what he bore on a cross. And he did it. He humbled himself, even death on a cross. Look not to the interests of others. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Look to their significance. He died in obedience to his Father's will, of whom he had been humbly submitted to for all eternity. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. He died so that we would be saved. God in the flesh died so that we would be saved, looking to our interests and thinking of our significance. This is humility. Heavenly glory to incarnation, from incarnation to death, even death on a cross. So I don't know why we think that Jesus came, but Jesus came to die. And why did he die? for God's eternal plan of salvation. Well, who's gonna get saved? Not the angels who look longingly into this good news, but to us. He died for us that we may be saved and spared eternity under righteous wrath and condemnation in hell. He was judged in our place, he was considered afflicted and stricken. He was forsaken by God the Father so that we wouldn't be. This is humility and this humiliation. And so he really died because our sin is real. It's not just some bad thoughts that we have or some things that we should have done better. Our motivations of our hearts, our thoughts, our actions have not loved God with everything. They've not loved our neighbor. And so we've been sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're separated from God and we're even divided with one another. We're all inwardly seeking our own ways, wise in our own eyes. And He came and died for us. That that kindness spurs to repentance. And so you don't become a Christian just by affiliating with the church or growing up in a church family. We become a Christian, a Jesus follower, by repenting of our sin. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel today. Our sin caused our Savior to die, but He did it willingly. He humbled Himself because He so loved you. He so loved me. Are we hearing this Word? Are we seeing Him by faith? Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Because of His extreme humility, a descent that we have never seen, will never see again, God hyper-exalted Him, super-exalted Him, Highly exalted him. This word does not even occur again in the scriptures. Paul takes the word exalt, hypso, and then adds a prefix to it, hyper. Hyper exalted him. Because no one else is going there. There's no higher place that Christ can go. After the low, low that he took to die for sinners, he is now hyper exalted in a place where there is no higher. He is above all. After being dead and buried, raised on the third day in glorious resurrection. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. He ascended into heaven. When he had said all these things to his disciples, looking up, they were, he was lifted up and, on a cloud and taken out of their sight. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? Jesus has many names. He's wonderful counselor. He's Prince of Peace. He's the Almighty. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Door. He's the Chief Shepherd. He's the Good Shepherd. He's the Word. He's the Light. He's the Lamb. He's the Bread of Life. He's the Rock. He's the Bridegroom. He's the Alpha and Omega. But what is the name that's above every name? Lord! Jesus Christ is Lord! Philippian church, Roman colony, pressured to bow down to Caesar. No, no. Jesus is Lord, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've never seen such a descent before, and there's been never an ascent like this. And at the appointed time, He's coming off that throne to come back and crack the sky and make all things new, and we'll be with Him forever in His presence. Complete my joy, the apostle writes. How? Let's be of one mind, same love. Well, how do we do that? Look to the interests of others. Count others more significant. Well, how do we do that? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Worship Him as Lord. We have these dual affections. How are we? What are this day of identity politics? Where are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to believe? What side are we on? It's so polarizing. We are. The kingdom of God is come and coming. We are to be citizens of heaven, living gospel-worthy lives. Fixing our eyes upon Christ, humbly saved us, and this powerful Lord of all. Let's pray.